go ahead and take God's word in your hands and turn to the book of Acts as we continue in our series that we've entitled Unfinished. And uh, we've learned in this series up to this point that the work of the church is unfinished. We've got a job to do, and with God's help, we learn from the book of Acts that we can, in fact, change the world. As we watch these uh, Christians that are really no different than any of us, filled by the Spirit of God, humble and willing to do the hard stuff, uh, they would go about the known world in their day and change the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God is calling us to that very task today. Uh, No matter where we find ourselves, no matter where we live, God is calling each and every one of us, every man, every woman, and every young adult to uh, be a life change agent for the world. And the book of Acts helps us uh, to remind us of how they did it. Number two, to remember that God was with them and that he is with us today. And also to recognize that sometimes God is willing to do the impossible uh, in some of the most difficult of situations. And so we can have faith that God will meet us with the task that he's given us uh, to share the great commission with all. But in Acts chapter 4 is where we'll find ourselves this morning. We're right in the middle of what Luke has been telling us about an incredible event. Peter and John are on their way uh, to a, a time of prayer, probably a routine in their lives. And they come to uh, the temple and there's a man who has been lame since birth. He's looking for money, probably a common occurrence that would take place uh, in first century times. He's asking for money and Peter and John say, we don't have any money, but what we do have can change your life. And he says, by the name of Jesus, I want you to stand up and walk. And right away, instantaneously, the man gets up and he walks. And he's filled with great joy and great passion for what God has done. And he clings, the scripture says, he clings himself, if you will, uh, to Peter and John on their way into uh, the temple. And of course, because this man had been known for some time, A great multitude of people had seen the man that each and every day was at the temple gates uh, asking for money, who couldn't walk, who had to have people carry him. Now walking around leaping for joy, it caused a stir. And I want to remind you this morning that when we step out in faith, people are going to be impacted. Number one, the lame man was impacted. He was, his life was changed. And we have the opportunity when we are bold about our faith to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people, their lives can be changed. But I also want you to recognize that the crowd was changed. It said that they were astonished by what they saw. That word astonished gripped me this week as I asked the question of my own life, does my Christian life astonish people? When unbelievers see what's going on in my life, when they see how I order my life, do they take notice? There's something different, the crowd said, about Peter and John. We're interested in these guys because they're living life, they're doing things that are out of the ordinary. We want to take notice. And as Christians, we have to ask the question, are people taking notice of our lives? And if they're not, either they're blind and are unwilling to even look, that may be a possibility, but I think probably more correct is we aren't doing the things that the book of Acts saw that would allow people to take notice. We're not bold in our faith. We're not sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. But I want to be honest, there's a third group of people we're going to see this morning who took notice, and that's the opposition. And when you step out in faith, people will come to know Jesus. God promises that. 
People will take notice. We know that. Every time there was a moving of the Spirit of God, crowds would assemble and see and ask questions. But as we're going to learn today, there comes opposition. And there will be people who will fight against you. There will be people who will stand opposed against you. There will be people who will mock you. There will be people who will uh, try to um, cut you down. And in those moments, we're going to need even more boldness. And this morning in Acts chapter 4, we're going to see this theme of boldness. Now some will ask me, Tim, tell me how you study the scriptures. You must have some, some secret way because the things you get out of the text, I really struggle in my personal Bible study to get out of. And I, I want to just give you a little picture into how I study. One of the ways I study is by observing what the text says. Not looking to the Greek or the Hebrew or anything, just reading the English translation, the same Bible you have, and trying to see are there common words, are there common themes within the passage. Boldness is our common theme this morning. Three times in chapter 4, Luke uses the phrase, and they were bold, or there was boldness shown. So what is the Holy Spirit trying to teach us in Acts chapter 4? To be bold as believers. It's as simple as that. But I will tell you, boldness is something, while the church could use a great uh, infusion of it, it is something that is difficult to come by. And we're going to learn how the first disciples did it and see how we can apply that today. So let's look to our text this morning, Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. Acts chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 1 through 22. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find our Bible, our passage on page 911 in the Pew Bibles that are there in front of you. It tells us the following, and they were speaking to the pe people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them into custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were in the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was reject rejected by you. The builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is no salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. 
But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them not to speak, uh, to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them and let them... They let them go, finding no way to punish them because the people for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years of age. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we've sung your praises and we've prayed prayers and we've elected leaders and now we open your word and we do so in a bubble. We do so in the comfortable confines of a building dedicated for that purpose. But you called us to more than just gathering together, singing songs, praying prayers, hearing sermons amongst other Christians. You called us, as your son told us, to be salt and light in the world. You spread us like the farmer out as seed into the world so that we might be planted and we might begin to produce a harvest. Your son Jesus told us that the fields in the world were white with harvest, therefore we as workers had to go out into the field. To do all those things, Lord, demand boldness. They demand courage. They demand our willingness to get out of our comfort zone, to take risks, to be willing to go against the flow. Lord, it didn't take long after the church enjoyed the favor of all people that opposition would come. We stand in a world where there's opposition. Not as bad of opposition as could be, but opposition nonetheless. And so, Lord, we pray as we look to the example of specifically Peter and John, that we would follow in their footsteps, and we would be men and women of courage and boldness, to stand up for you, to proclaim your name, and to leave the results with you, even the good and bad and ugly that may come as a result. Now speak through me, Lord, I pray that you might be glorified in all that is said and done. In Christ's name we pray, amen. While the Holy Spirit was the engine that produced the ministry of the early church, boldness Uh, was the mechanism or the conduit that allowed that result to take place. The Holy Spirit filled them, but they had a role, a job to do, and that job is the same for us today. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's what times like this morning are for, to be filled so we can go out and go and share and go and proclaim and go and shed light in a world of darkness. But to do that involves boldness. But what is boldness? The Bible talks about boldness by using a Greek word called pararesia, and it shows up throughout the New Testament. And literally, it can mean a whole range of things. Courage, fearlessness. It can also mean outspokenness or frankness, an ability to use speech that conceals nothing. One scholar called it the ultimate freedom of speech. Not concerned about what anybody says, not concerned about what me... people might think, 
but the ability to speak. And, and when we talk about biblical courage or Christian courage, we're talking about the freedom of speech to talk and proclaim about the good news of Jesus Christ, about his life, about his death, about his resurrection to a world around us without fear of reprisal, without fear of losing popularity, without fear of any kind of recourse. This is one of the most needed sermons for the American church. We're not bold. We're timid. We're afraid. In all of the world, we have been given an inalienable right to be able to speak without fear of reprisal. And we'll fight that. We'll fight for that belief. We'll fight for that right. And yet we rarely utilize it. We rarely go and allow ourselves to be guilty of that kind of freedom of speech. But I'm here to tell you this morning, boldness is something that is absent within the church. But what is it? Notice the screen this morning, a definition. The definition of boldness is the following. Boldness is our willingness to venture out and do the right thing at the right time, regardless of the barriers or the fears we may encounter. This enables us to speak the truth and perform a task without fear of consequences or results, because it is the right and biblical thing to do. It is realizing that God is in control. He is there within and beside us, and he'll take care of us. Therefore, we do not need to fear what others can do. Rather, we are to concentrate on our character and our call, and to do it with passion and conviction. It's a great definition of what we as Christians are called to do. And yet, as we look at that, sadly, far too many of us fail at this each and every day. And God in his grace doesn't give up on us on our first fail or our first try at it. He gives us opportunities and more opportunities to do it. And he continues to encourage us. And he gives us great examples of this. Now, what keeps us from being bold? I know there's a litany of of excuses that you are using right now to validate why you're not very bold. Personality. Uh, Maybe a more quiet spirit you have. You say, that's just not my gift. I'll leave that to the guys like Tim. Uh, They're outspoken. They always have something to say. Maybe it's that you just don't feel that you have anything important to say. Maybe you feel like you don't know the Bible well enough. Well, there are a lot of things that are the opposite of boldness. Notice on the screen again, the cowardice and fearfulness, cynicism, negativity, discouragement, and pessimism are all opposites to boldness. These negative traits create a negative attitude that is infectious to others. Listen, if you as an individual are not bold, it will start to spawn off to other people boldness of Peter and John fed into boldness of the church. And that's why when we talk about courage in our leaders, the reason why we want courageous leaders isn't just so we can point and say, those are courageous guys, because we hope when you see courageous elders, you'll see a create a courageous church. It takes, it takes on a life of its own. Now, these things cause people not to take the chance to go forward with what God is calling them to. Thus, the person or the church remains ensnared in fear, allowing obstacles to stop them so that the work our Lord has for them remains undone. Fear, worry, anxiety are plagues within the church. 
And we need to speak the truth of Scripture that God is with us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. We need to recognize that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. What can man or woman do to us? We have to believe these things. We have to promote these things. We have to tell and encourage one another with these things. Because if we don't, we will allow the church's job to remain unfinished. Not because we don't have the ability, not because the spirit isn't there, but because we are unwilling to step out in faith and be bold for Christ. Listen, every incredible movement in human history has started with a bold person. Let me share with you just from the 20th century a couple of them. I wonder how bold it was for an African-American man named Jesse Owens to head to the Olympics in Berlin. The Olympics where the Third Reich, the Nazis, found themselves promoting a a white supremacy. A new Reich, a thousand year reign of white individuals. No wonder uh, Hitler was so upset when he would come back, Jesse Owens would, with four gold medals. It took a bold man, a bold athlete to do that. How about boldness with regards to the civil rights? Oh, I'm ahead of myself. Another one with the Nazis, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran minister in Germany during the Nazi occupation. And uh, Bonhoeffer was one of the most well-known pastors in all of Germany, and he had a radio program. The two most listened-to radio programs were the weekly radio address by Adolf Hitler and the weekly sermon of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer would use his time to rail against, from a biblical perspective, the wrongs of Nazism and the paranoia of Hitler. Bonhoeffer would lose his life in his stance against Nazism. That's a bold preacher. To stand at times all by himself and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ against a tyrant. How about in the South during the 50s? When desegregation took place, the Little Rock Nine found themselves students being jeered at and yelled at, threatened, mocked, and abused. And yet they were bold enough, had courage enough to step into a school where they would be hated. Boldness changed a country's view on race. Let's fast forward again. Rosa Parks. She don't look very bold. She don't look like she is a superhero, a little bitty lady who made a bold decision to sit in the front of the bus instead of the back. She would start a revolution. Would it cost her? You bet. She would have death threats. She would have her family have notes of desiring that they be assaulted. She'd be put in jail. But she was bold. Boldness moved into the world of technology in the 20th century. And it took some bold men, number one, to dream a big dream that we could put men on the moon. Think about those men that were in those spaceships that made that first a trip to the moon. The unknown, the courage. I don't know if I could have done it, but they did. And they were able to advance for us a new way of dreaming and believing that the impossible could be had. And then in my life, an event that many of you will never forget, in communist China, 
with the threat of communism coming down and thwarting anyone who would be a part of an uprising in Tiananmen Square, China, a lone man stands in front of a line of tanks that are moving in to squelch the rebellion, the protest. And if you remember, and I wish I had the video of it, the man stands firm and the tank moves. That's boldness. That's courage. Now these people all stood for righteous things. They all stood for great things. But might I say this morning, without any disrespect to what they did, is not the cross of Jesus Christ, is not the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is not eternity with Jesus Christ far more important than even the most important temporal things of this world? Does it then therefore not uh, call us to be bold, to be courageous, to stand in the gap for God and his ministry? Peter and John did that. And that work is left unfinished. They didn't do all the bold stuff that we no longer have to worry about it. They were bold in their generation, in their time. And now they've handed the baton to you and I so that you and I might be bold. And I want to one day be able to look at them and say, Hey guys, you were bold in the first century and Village Bible Church was bold in the 21st century. And we picked up where you let us off. But in order to do that, we need to recognize some things this morning. Notice, first of all, that boldness is necessary because of opposition. Listen, you cannot be bold. You cannot be bold if everybody agrees with you. If you're a Republican, it is not hard to be bold at the Republican convention. If you're a Democrat, the same is true. If you're a Cub fan in Wrigley Field, it's not hard to root for the Cubs. But go down to the south side and root for those cubs. It'll take some boldness. It is not bold if you uh, are here this morning, amening and singing. It's easy for us to be bold here. But where it becomes difficult is when we go to the opponent's side of the world, if you will. When we go into hostile territory, that it becomes necessary for boldness to become a reality. For many of you, boldness isn't needed here in the church. Boldness is needed tomorrow in your workplace. Boldness is needed tomorrow in your school. Boldness is needed for some even this morning to go home to your spouse who hates that you go to church. Boldness is needed within your extended friends and family in your neighborhoods where you're outnumbered, where you're the minority, where your views are not viewed with such positivity, positivity, I don't know, whatever. I don't know what I'm saying there. Positively, thank you, positively as it may here in the church. And likewise, as we look at the book of Acts, we find that things are going well for the church. Twice in Acts chapter 2, we see everybody's enjoying this. This is great. This is fun. No boldness is needed. There's just a whole lot of people getting saved and everybody's enjoying it. Nobody seemingly is arguing with anybody. It's a great time. But now in Acts chapter 4, right when the church gets moving, opposition comes. And it requires this new characteristic for the Christian, and that is boldness or, or courage. But what was the opposition? 
Notice in verses 1 through 5, Acts 4 picks up where Acts 3 leaves off. The priests, the men who served at the temple, the captain of the temple who's the guard, uh, these most powerful people, they're called the group of Sadducees. These are the politicians and liberals, uh, theological liberals of the day. They hear what Peter and John are saying, because Peter's just preached a sermon, and he's created quite a crowd. 5,000 men have come to know Jesus. And the vocal opposition says, we got to stop this. we got to get this dealt with. And so they arrest Peter and John. Now, why in the world would they arrest Peter and John? The reason why is found in the title of who is arresting them, the Sadducees. The Sadducees. The Sadducees, we know a lot about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the group of, of priests. They were the, the kind of the, the lawmen of uh, the law of Moses. They made sure that everybody did their religious duty just right. But the Sadducees were different. They were the aristocratic. They were the rich. They were the, uh, the politicians. Uh, they were the ones who were more worried about political intrigue than they were the scriptures. And so they had really very little thought about Jesus. They didn't care. Jesus was a Bible teacher. It was a theological issue. So all throughout Jesus' time, the Pharisees were the ones that were fighting with Jesus. The Sadducees we don't see at all usually involved in any discussions with Jesus. But now Jesus is dead. And now this church is taking on more and more people. And where more and more people start aligning with a particular doctrine or a particular uh, struggle, it becomes political. So now we've seen 3,000 and now 5,000 just in Jerusalem. Upwards to 10,000 people are now saying they are followers of Jesus Christ. And the Sadducees say, wait a minute, this is getting political. If these guys start assembling on a regular basis, then they're going to start taking over things and we've got a problem. Well, they had two problems. Number one, they did not believe in the concept of a Messiah. Pharisees did. Pharisees had an idea of a Messiah coming to be the leader of their people. They didn't think Jesus was it, but they believed in it. Sadducees didn't. Sadducees believed that the Messiah was this kind of ideal Kind of how uh, the, the society should run. Not a person, but kind of a thought, a theme of how to live life. And the disciples are saying, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that the prophets foretold about. So they didn't believe in that. That was a problem for the Sadducees. And then number two, the Sadducees didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in any kind of resurrection of the dead for anybody. And what's the major theme of the early church? Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who was crucified, dead, buried, and rose again. The Sadducees throw a flag. When I was in, in Sunday school class, the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees were they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, and that was why they were sad, you see. See how much Sunday school can help? I didn't learn that in seminary. I learned that in Mrs. Jones' Sunday school class. Never forgot it. And so here's these upstarts, these uneducated people, and they're preaching that Jesus is the Messiah, and that he's been raised from the dead, and the Sadducees say, we've got to stop this, because if this becomes an issue, it's going to become political, and we're not going to be able to stop it. And so we've got to get a handle on this, and so they bring them together. And they bring them together, and they deny these things. 
notice the world's denial because we have opposition. What's the world opposing us with? Their denials. Notice that the denials of the Sadducees are the same denials of the world. That Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah, and that he has done what he said he has done, and that is been raised from the dead. And the world says, we don't need Jesus. And if they talk about Jesus, they talk about him as a theme, as an ideal, but not as a person, especially not the Son of God. And they deny him. And they say, no, you know, you can't preach that. That's intolerant. That's bigoted. And they deny the idea that Jesus is who he says he is. And so the Sadducees are denying that Jesus is who he was and has done the things he has done. And today, while they don't call themselves that, the unbelieving world stands in solidarity with the Sadducees of the first century. And they stand in opposition against us. Now here's the dilemma. First of all, the dilemma for the Sadducees. The Sadducees have got a problem. Because notice in the text, the text tells us that here they are, they're mad at the disciples, they're preaching something they're against, and they've got now 5,000 people affirming it. But the problem is, in verse 14, that they hear this preaching... And the dilemma they have to deal with is that the man that was crippled, lame, is standing right next to them. What do we do with that? That guy that always been laying out at the beautiful gate, at the temple, he's with them. Problem, he's standing. Problem, he's jumping. Problem, he's in the front of the line for jump rope. We've got a problem. We don't know how to explain that. We don't know. We can deny that Jesus is who he is. We can deny that Jesus says what he did uh, is true. We can deny all of that. But the problem is that these guys are saying, by the name of this Jesus, who we say is nothing, has made something happen. What are we going to do with that? I want you to notice that the world will deny many things about Jesus, but what they cannot deny, which causes a dilemma in them is the change that's happened with us. They cannot deny that. How could they deny the guy's like, I was lame, now I run. Well, you know what? No, you can't. Look, I can. Watch. Look. See with your own eyes. They experience something even amidst wanting to deny it. When we live lives of courage, we allow the unbelieving world to experience the change that Jesus has done in our life that has to cause a dilemma in the lives of their unbelief. They can no longer say, I just deny. We've got family, we've got friends that will look at Amanda's in my life and and they'll say, we don't like your Jesus, but we don't know what to say. You, You have joy. You have courage. There's a peace that you have. We can't deny that. We see that. And and what this hopefully is what Tim and Amanda are doing on a continual basis. Where did that come from? Well, we're just great people. No. That came from Jesus. Jesus is my peace. Jesus is my courage. Jesus is my joy. They can deny what Jesus has done. They can deny what Jesus can say. But they cannot deny the change that's happened 
in us. And that's why we've got to be bold. That's why we've got to be courageous because we are the light. We are the salt in the world that should be then proclaiming the excellencies, Peter says. The same guy. That we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and brought us into his wonderful light. Let me ask you this this morning. Your workplace fellow employees... Do they see something different with you on Monday morning because you were with Jesus on Sunday? Do they say, hey, you're different. There's something there. You've got something I don't. Number one, you may have it and you're hiding it. Or number two, you may not be as filled with the Spirit as you once thought you were. Boldness is necessary because of opposition. Now notice the next thing that we see, and that is that boldness demands great conviction. To be bold, you have to stand for something. I mean, what good is it to be bold about dumb things, unnecessary things, unimportant things? But notice verse 7 in our text says, and when they had set them in the midst, they inquired. Listen, they're intimidating. They put them within the circle. They've surrounded them. They're intimidating them. They're, they're um, ganging up on them. And they're going to ask them some questions. And the question is, how did this happen? How did this happen? And I wonder if, if you will for a moment, imagine with me Peter and John. I wonder if they're like, here we go. Jesus said they were going to bring us into the temple and they were going to uh, threaten us and they were going to abuse us and they were going to mock us and they were going to hurt us. And, and then they don't have to go but just some weeks back and remember that some of these same characters were a part of the group that beat and mocked and flogged Jesus. And I wonder if in that moment, Peter and John had the temptation of saying, you know what, it's not worth it. I'll just keep my mouth shut. I'll just stay quiet. Or if they had made the, the thought, we'll just fight to, we'll just uh, uh, wait for another day. We'll fight another day. We'll wait for a better battle where our odds are better, where we'll have a greater opportunity for victory. But that's not what Peter does. Even though I'm sure they were afraid, wondering what they would do, they did not usurp, and this is important for us, they did not usurp the general's role in their life. Jesus had told them, you're going to go into the world to make disciples. And he told them, you're going to go out into the world and you're going to say things and people are going to persecute you just as they persecuted me. And that's true for us today. And they said, listen, we're in Jerusalem. Jesus said, we're going to go to the othermost parts of the world. We're not there yet. We're still in Jerusalem. There's still work to be done. And so they didn't pick the battlefield, they didn't pick the time, but Peter and John were ready, and courage and boldness recognizes that you're not in charge, God is, and when he calls you to something, your job is to do it. And so how did they do it? Some of you are sitting there going, well, that's great, Tim, how do you get there? Number one, it clearly comes from the Spirit. It comes from the Spirit. Notice in the text, it says uh, in verse, uh, let's see here, verse 8, I believe, then Peter 
filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders. Let's stop there. Peter all of a sudden gets courage. Now, before you think that Peter was just an outspoken individual, and for my timid friends out there who I recognize are trying to generate some sort of comeback why you don't need to be bold, let's remember big and bad and bold Peter wasn't bold the night that Jesus was arrested. So this is not a personality thing. Because on the first opportunity to be bold, Peter didn't do it. And so even the big and bad and bold people in your life have the same fears, the same concerns, the same anxieties that you might have this morning. So what changed in Peter? It wasn't his personality that changed. He was filled with the Spirit. Well, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? We've been talking about the Spirit's impact in our lives, and we will continue to do so in the book of Acts. But to be filled with the Spirit means that instead of fear, you're filled with something else. The Apostle Paul speaks about uh, being filled with the Spirit like the drunk who is intoxicated with wine. And the picture works well, even though it is completely opposite in, in its perspective, if you will. They're totally different things, and yet they paint a very similar picture. The drunk who fills himself with wine is filling himself with wine to the point that the wine is directing him. The wine takes away fear and inhibitions. The wine no longer is causing him to, to think, but to respond. And likewise, by the Spirit, when we fill ourselves, or allow the Spirit, maybe is a better way to say it, when we allow the Spirit to fill us, and we are filling ourselves with good things from the Lord, then there's no opportunity for fear, because we filled ourselves up with the courage and boldness of the Lord. There's no opportunity for excuse because we're filled to the brim of what God is going to do. Instead of filling ourselves with anxiety and worry and fear, we have filled ourselves with the good things of the Lord. And therefore, when it is time, the things that we articulate in some ways, without going too far, it is not us who's doing the talking, but that which has filled us. If you've ever been around a drunk individual, they will say things, and someone will say, that's not them talking, that's the booze talking, right? Well, Peter, I bet you John was saying, that's not Peter talking, that's the Spirit talking. The Spirit's taken over. He's so filled with the Spirit. And I want you to recognize the book of Acts. If you wonder, am I filled with the Spirit? The book of Acts always talks about the filling of the Spirit, and then the next act that takes place is people using the filling of the Spirit to speak boldly for Christ. To do bold things by proclaiming Christ to a lost generation and a lost world. Are we filled with the Spirit? A filling of the Spirit means that we are more, the text tells us, about pleasing God than pleasing men. Because we are so saturated, we are so filled with a theology that says God is way bigger and God is way more important than my popularity, than my comfort, than my job, than my future, than my friends. 
when we're filled with all the things of this world and popularity and comfortability and, and possessions and pleasures outweigh those things. Peter was filled with the Spirit and he boldly proclaimed. Notice it's confirmed by the Scriptures. Notice verses 8 through 10. It's confirmed by the Scriptures. Peter says, rulers of the people and elders... If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. He goes on, he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become now the cornerstone. Where did he get all this? We got it from Jesus. But where did Jesus bring this out to? Jesus didn't just say, take my word for it. Notice Peter uses a passage from the Psalms. That Jesus would become the rock that would be rejected. Isaiah talks about that as well. And that he would become a cornerstone. Notice, just turn your Bible a page back to chapter 3, and you see over and over again, in verse 18, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So boldness means we have to have a working knowledge of the Scriptures. Listen. I I was talking with Jeff Nordell this morning, and Jeff's an air traffic controller. I have zero boldness when it comes to landing an airplane. I got nothing. So if you put me into Jeff's seat, I'm scared. I got no idea what I'm doing, and you know who should be scared? The people up in the plane. Okay? Why? Because I have no working knowledge of that. But if you ask me how to cook a good chop or a good steak, I got courage. I got boldness. I know my way around a grill because I have a working knowledge. I have an experience. Listen, your boldness will only go as far as the scriptures have been built in your life. And if you don't have a working knowledge of the scriptures, if you don't have a working knowledge of how Jesus has done things in the past, how he's doing things in the present, how he's doing things in the future, then you will never be bold in your faith. Because you don't know what your faith is. We don't teach theology here at Village Bible Church to give you big heads. We give you theology so that you can be bold. I know what I believe. And I know how to proclaim it. Now, does that mean we have to be snobby intellectuals? No, notice they still saw the guys as uneducated, untrained men. So it wasn't like they had certificates that handed out that said, hey, I'm a smart guy, listen to me. But they had been around Jesus. And some of us aren't bold because we're not hanging around Jesus enough to see how powerful he is, to see how wise he is, and to see how wonderful he is and what he has done. And so when someone mocks Jesus or someone uh, is asking a question about Jesus in a crowded room, the last thing we want to do is try to be an expert in something we have no working knowledge of. And so we cower away. It's confirmed by the Scriptures. 
We've got to know the scriptures to know what we believe. Notice it is clear on salvation. Verse 12, one of the most famous passages of all of scripture, right in the middle of this, Peter says the following, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Holy cow. He says a mouthful. Where did he get this? Jesus, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Peter says, listen, this man wasn't healed by any other measure except by Jesus. And so you've got to recognize opposing world that if you want to be made right with God, you've got to go through Jesus. Now listen, the second you say that, I get it's going to mean opposition is going to come down hard upon you. The world's going to say no. But I want you to notice something. When we do it right, they don't have a defense. They don't know what to do. These guys' lives have been changed. They're changing the lives of people around them. The lame man has been changed. They've got a dilemma. They don't know what to do with him. And so they have to just let them go. But before they do, I want you to notice what they do. It says in chapter 4 that they threatened them more. In order, in verse 17, not to spread things any farther, let us warn them to speak no more about it. So they called them and charged them not to speak and teach. Listen, they're flapping their gums. And I want you to know spiritually, the world is flapping its gums at you when it threatens you about speaking the name of Jesus. They got nothing. In fact, they've got so little that the disciples, when they get back, will learn about this next week. They praise God for the opportunity. It was awesome. What a great opportunity. Here's the thing that we need to remember. There's hope in this world. And there's only one hope. And if we truly believe that with all our heart, then we have to be compelled in boldness to proclaim that good news to all who will listen because apart from Jesus, no one will be saved. So let me close with this, and this is a short point as it usually is, but we need to be moved to action. Boldness demands action. It demands action. And there are three things very quickly that I want you to understand. Number one, Peter fought the law and the Lord won. Okay. They, they were outnumbered, they were intimidated, they were threatened, but in the end they had to be released. A huge victory for the early church. But what about us? What about the battles in our lives? When we're ganged up on and intimidated in our workplaces, schools, lunchrooms, through the media, in our neighborhoods, where we're outnumbered. Church, it's time to be bold. Church, it's time to show courage. If God is truly for us, church, who can be against us? What do we need to remember? Write these three things down. Number one, the power of your partnership. Does the world recognize you've been with Jesus? You may not have all the education. You may not be very eloquent. You may be pretty mousy in your personality, but I'll tell you, when you've hung around Jesus a long time, everything changes. Everything changes. 
Because hanging out with Jesus is going to give you the courage that's necessary. Jesus said when he gave them the the disciples and us the Great Commission, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We have a partner even when the going gets tough. Jesus is with us. Number two, pick the right power broker. Are you going to choose to be uh, submissive to the Sadducees of our world? To the leaders of our world? To the outspoken dissenters of our world? Or like Peter and John, are you going to say, listen, it, it may seem right to follow you, but we've got to follow God. We've got to follow Jesus. And so if we've got to break your man-made rules, we'll do so because the great power broker is not you. Even though you pontificate, even though you intimidate, you're not the one in charge. God's in charge. Let me tell you something. When you see God in charge, you'll show courage. You'll show courage. And finally, notice at the end of the text, they praise God and they don't pout. This is huge, okay? So I'm going to give about 30 seconds on it. It's huge though, okay? Verse 21, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what happened. If you fast forward to verse 23 real quick. I'm sorry, verse 24. And when they heard it, the other disciples lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. And they go on and they praise God. Listen, what do we do as Christians? We pout. Well, there's opposition and we pout and we cry and we bemoan all the opposition. And we're not even close to the opposition that they were dealing with. What did they do? Praise God. This is awesome. They opposed us. You know why they praised God and didn't pout? Because opposition, listen, very important, and I'll close with this. Opposition means God's on the move. And so if you're being opposed today, if you're being opposed at your workplace or in your school, take heart and praise the Lord. You're doing the right thing. You're standing for what is right and true. And the devil wants to fight against it, and he will use people to fight against it every step of the way. Start praising God and stop pouting about the opposition that God brings because notice the opposition made the church stronger, and it will make this church stronger as well.